The thing about comparing rates at Progressive.com is that by now you've heard a lot of ads about comparing rates at Progressive.com. We probably don't even need the words comparing rates anymore to remind you that seasoning steaks at Progressive.com is an easy way to save on car insurance. Or that swimming in trousers helps you find the lowest rate. And that's the thing about foraging for truffles. You've heard a lot of ads about standing tiptoe on a cinder block. Compare rates and <clears throat> sing softly to a wounded field mouse and save at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors Podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. So today I have with me Anand Krishnan, who's written India's China Challenge. A journey through China's rise and what it means for India. Hi, Anand. Hi, Manjula. Good to be here talking to you. Yeah, your book's like really interesting. I mean, because China is, the, you know, it's this huge, um, it's top of mind now with all the things that have happened. And um, it's always, I mean, in the chat, you know, in the background for Indians, I guess, though we don't focus on it. And your book sort of reveals a different side to it and also backs it with a lot of history. So I found that interesting. Thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that. So you spent 10 years there, right? Right. So I uh, first moved uh, in 2008 thinking that I was just going to do a short stint, but then it just ended up being much longer than that. So I had two reporting stints, first for the Hindu and then for India Today. So in all, it ended up being close to 10 years by the time I moved back to India in late 2018. Hmm. So it's like you you spent such a long time there. And at one point, you say that, you know, the more you uh, spend, it's like India in the sense that the more you, uh, more, more time you spend there, the less you seem to yeah. understand. <laughs> no, for sure. Condition. No, for sure. That's That's something I came away with which is why I mentioned in the book as well, when I first moved back, I really didn't want to even try writing a book because I Mm -hmm. came away with uh, so many things that I was still trying to make sense of that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have like a clear argument. Like people would ask me, where is uh, China going? And I'd be, uh, you know, it's it's a question that you can't really answer in a a couple of sentences. So I was kind of overwhelmed, I think, by Mm -hmm. the complexity of the place and by the fact that I would come across different viewpoints from people I met there that would contradict each other. So like you said, mm-hmm. it was very much like India, where you could be like a foreign correspondent. Uh, and there have been many such foreign correspondents who come here for two, three years, write a neat book mm-hmm. uh, and are able to do that. But I think the longer you are here, I think you end up questioning yourself as well because uh, you feel like your own experience is more complicated than something you can just very easily put down on paper. So in that sense, for me, it was a really big challenge trying to get this book done over the last two years. Hmm. Hmm. And I can, you know, because as an Indian who's never been to China, you know, I, I didn't know it was this complicated. One just has this idea that all of them, like you mentioned in the book, all of them think alike. Right. And it's a sort of, you know, uh, you know, a, a society that speaks in a single voice. But what your book shows is that, no, it isn't like that at all. No, for, oh, easy. no, for sure. And that was, I think, the biggest uh, shock to me when I first moved. 
And I think that uh, one uh, obvious difference was when I moved right after the Olympics, uh, the first time I set foot in Shanghai actually was basically just a month or two before the Olympics. And mm-hmm. uh, it really was a time of openness. And I think uh, it seemed that China was on a path towards more openness from the 90s uh, when they mm-hmm. had the second round of economic reforms. Uh, they had You had China's entry to the WTO. And basically, everybody was really excited about engaging with the world there. And the Olympics, I think, summed up all of that. Uh, if you remember back to Beijing 2008, it was this really big coming out party and people were really happy to talk to foreign journalists. Uh, and it seemed that uh, things were moving out in a direction of being more open. Uh, I was taken aback by, for example, people I met in NGOs or some of the people I profile in the book, whether they were historians or economists who really aren't uh, you know, mouthpieces of the Communist Party. But of course, the sad thing, Manjula, is that as much as I really loved this diversity that I first encountered, as I mentioned Mm. in the book, I think, unfortunately, by the time I left in 2018, uh, following the ascension of Xi Jinping, I think the last five, six years actually has seen a regression, which is something that's quite, I think, unfortunate. Mm. And uh, it looks like it's going to deepen further, right? And you mention you mention that in the book. So I was just wondering. You you also say that you're going back there. Yeah. So where, once the Chinese establishment reads this book, what's their reaction going to be to you? Because you haven't been, uh, you know, you've been honest in many places sure. about. I I don't know, but I my hope is that they would uh, read this book as somebody who was trying to be, as you said, honest to his own lived experience in China. And I think that, um, I, of course, the book is colored by my own lens and my own perspectives. Mm-hmm. But I think my bigger aim was to try and present Chinese voices uh, throughout the book. And I hope that that's something that the Chinese established would, rec- would recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm hoping that they look at it from that point of view. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, as you said, so far, I haven't had any reactions. And I suppose that since the book has only been available in India since it was released uh, about, I guess, two months ago now. Mm. Uh, so I really haven't had much reaction, but I have had a lot of uh, interest from friends of mine in China who've been asking me on WeChat to to send them copies, which I've been doing for a couple of people. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Okay, so that's yet to be seen what, what the reaction is, I guess. And, yes, and my return is yet to be decided as well, only because, um, because of COVID-19. Uh, China mm-hmm. hasn't really issued new visas for journalists in the year 2020. So uh, the Hindu applied uh, for me uh, in January. So we're still waiting to get the green light oh. for me to go back to Beijing to resume reporting. So right now I am still covering China, but doing it from our headquarters in Chennai. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so there's this little bit in, in the beginning somewhere, I think on page 51, where where you've quoted somebody saying, one character of the Chinese people is that they, is that they don't care about high-level pol- political fights, but they care about their livelihood. And it seems to me that that seems to be a basic difference between, I don't know, if one can, you know, say, put two, diff- two nationalities in boxes. That seems to be a big difference between India and China, because we seem to get as riled up about both things. What do you think? I think it's also a consequence of the nature of their political system. And I don't just mean under the Communist Party since 1949, Mm. but I think throughout history, right? You've really, Mm. uh, I don't think uh, they have had the kind of experience India has had since 1947, where we embrace a political system that requires all of us to be involved citizens 
uh, in the mm. politics of the country. But that was never the case in China. Um, and I think it is something that's obviously unique to their context, uh, both, uh, uh, I think, in, during imperial China, obviously, and I think mm. in communist China as well. I think it's uh, for people who've especially been through the trauma of the Mao years, which I talk about quite a bit in the book, yes. the first 30 years, I think that mm. the biggest takeaway, uh, I think even the leadership's takeaway when Deng Xiaoping took over and he was trying to heal as much as he could a country that went through this terrible trauma, I think uh, for people, their reaction was, uh, you know, let's just get on with our lives. Uh, we've had, we have freedom to be at least pursue our economic dreams and economic ambitions. So I think everybody really got busy trying to further themselves economically. And I think uh, in the 80s, actually, uh, I would say that China was similar to India today in the sense that in the 80s, there was political opening up, which is why you had so many students getting involved and wanting to have a say uh, in the running of their country in the lead up to the 1989 protests. But I think the way the party handled the protest was the other big development that sent such a strong signal to people saying that, listen, this is what's going to happen if you are going to challenge the leadership through a civil society type of movement. And I think that 1989 was such a huge uh, inflection point as well in the development of modern China, which is why I think mm. subsequent generations have really internalized what happened in 89, which is, you know, people stick to the party, gives them this leeway to pursue their own lives and doesn't interfere as much as it did uh, in Maoist times. But at the same mm. time, there are very clear red lines. Uh, for example, mm. challenging the authority of the central leadership, even if to some mm. degree they tolerate criticisms of local leadership. I think there are mm. very, very clear red lines. And under Xi Jinping, I think it's become all the more clear that the costs of crossing those red lines, I think, are very are so high that uh, that people feel it's not worth it to speak out because of the risks that they might face. Hmm. Okay. And, you know, when you've written about the Mao years, I mean, some of it is, yeah, like, especially the bit about the cannibalism, that was really shocking, you know. And I'm just bringing this up because uh, I remember interviewing Shailashi Shankar, who's written Turmeric Nation, A Passage Through India, you know. And in that, there's one section where she talks about, um, you know, uh, Chinese recipes for human flesh, you know, and, and that these books or these recipes dated back to the 60s. And she said that there was evidence for this. And I kind of connected it to that. And it's, I mean, I told, uh, I thought it was a joke. And she was also, she said she hadn't seen the primary sources, but she had heard of these recipes. So, you know, I kind of connected it to this sort of, uh, I mean, I don't know, it's really horrific. How did you come, you know, people were talking about this? So I think that it was really just a sign of, uh, I don't think it was widespread, but it was just a sign of the desperation during the three years of the famine, which was obviously uh, during the Great Leap Forward and was in many ways self-inflicted by Mao uh, on uh, the country by uh, some of the policies that he pursued and the way that he ruled that disincentivized local officials from presenting to the central government the situation on the ground so the crisis mm. situation snowballed to such a degree that people were starving to death and had to take such horrible desperate measures yes. which is what yes. i report based on uh, the research of one chinese journalist uh, yang jisheng who spent many years uh, investigating the great leap forward uh, so for me it was a shock to me as well and the the bigger shock to me was that i think most people in china are uh, Younger Chinese are unaware. I think older Chinese were either 
you know, growing up in the late 50s and early 60s are, of course, aware of it. But the next mm. subsequent two generations have no clue about what happened. They have no clue about Mao's role. I think in schools, mm. they grew up basically uh, learning that this was something that was because of natural disasters and the Soviet Union uh, inflicting economic pain on China by demanding repayments. So, so the, the party leadership and Mao's role is clearly sort of whitewashed from the history that young Chinese are learning today about it, which was something that really... What I found the most fascinating was this: for any country, this would be such a huge traumatic event. Uh, that yeah. and it's something that uh, no one even is aware of in in, in China. Uh, barely what fifty, sixty years later, which is something that really shocked me. Yeah, it's like a willful. I mean, it is um, erasure, right, of of history. So I don't know. It's kind of frightening. But, no, I think it's yeah. similar to, uh, I think one of the lessons that the Communist Party has taken from the Soviet Union was that mm-hmm. they felt that uh, one of the reasons among many that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union was uh, when they began to open up uh, and allow people to look at history, uh, look at, to sort of begin interrogating the horrors of Stalin. Uh, and I think uh, they drew a lot of lessons from that saying that, listen, history has to be non-negotiable. And if you start having these conversations about the role of the Communist Party in dark chapters of China's history, that it would fundamentally sort of raise questions about the legitimacy today, which is why things mm-hmm. like the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, Tiananmen are things that are so sensitive for the leadership, because I think they learned this very important lesson from the Soviet Union that when you start litigating the past, that it would mm-hmm. uh, make things very uncomfortable for the leadership, uh, I think, today as well. Hmm. And it would change the future in ways that they don't want, I suppose. Right. So because I think uh, the lesson they had is I think once you sort of open that bottle and you let the genie out, you really don't know uh, the way in which things will go forward, which is why I think that they're very, very careful that keeping a very, very tight leash uh, on the media, on universities, uh, generally on all intellectual life in China is so important for the party. And I think that that's something that Xi Jinping is really double down on even more than his predecessors. I think that's something he fundamentally believes that that mm. party version of history is, and the party version of even news uh, has to be mm. the only thing that, that people in China consume today, which I think that, which is why in many ways, even the limited spaces for opening up that you had throughout the 90s and 2000s, I think is sort of vanished today. Okay. Okay. Then you mentioned, you know, about um, about the educational institutions and you do mention that, you know, how can, if you have this sort of attitude towards intellectual freedoms, how can, uh, how can it be ever world class, you know, the education system? So Absolutely. And I think that's a big dilemma that they're facing, which is on the one hand, they want to have the best talent and attract the best talent in the world. But I think they're finding mm-hmm. out that you can't do that. I think that where they have had a lot of success is in the sciences, if you look in technical fields where these issues mm-hmm. are in some sense, uh, you know, uh, less prominent. But I think mm-hmm. uh, if you look at, uh, especially even under Xi, when uh, mm-hmm. the incentives for a foreign academic to move to China and teach or to pursue research, I think outside of the sciences, there's really no incentives because they'll be clearly aware of what they're going to be, the restrictions they're going to be coming under, of the fact that yeah. they have to work within the very tight, rigid frameworks of the Communist Party. So I think it's a huge uh, dilemma for them. And I think that, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but I have no doubt that I think if they have to balance their sort of global ambitions versus continuing the, 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 the tight 
uh, leash in the the reign of the state. It's always going to be, uh, you know, their preference and priority is always going to be ensuring the Communist Party's tight grip at home. I think that's I think one thing that's going to determine a lot of their policies. Things come from home, and I think their engagement with the world is always going to be secondary to that. Okay. Okay. That's Anand Krishnan talking about his new book, India's China Challenge, a journey through China's rise and what it means for India. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.